here's a question. What is peer pressure? Now, if I was a betting man, not only would I bet that you all knew what peer pressure was and you'd all experienced peer pressure, but I'd also bet that each one of us, including myself, has at some time at least given in to peer pressure. That strong desire to be part of the in crowd, causing us to do something deep down that we know we shouldn't. Or that horrible fear of being left out. It causes us to cross a line that we later regret. Now, long before the phrase peer pressure was coined, C.S. Lewis addressed a graduating class at university with exactly this. So there was these university students that had finished their degrees and they were going out to the world. And the faculty had invited C.S. Lewis to give a presentation, a message. And he titled the message, The Inner Ring. And he argued to these young men and women that as they went out to face the world, this desire to be part of the in crowd, the inner ring, would always be something that they would have to face. And crossing the line would often lead to compromise and regret. Listen to some of his thoughts, and I quote, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives in all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. And then he went on to write this. I wonder whether many a virginity has not been lost in obedience to true love, but in obedience to the lure of the crowd. For, of course, when proscommunity is the fashion, the chaste are outsiders. The chaste are ignorant of something that other people know. They are uninitiated. And as for lighter matters, the numbers who first smoke or got drunk for a similar reason is probably very large. And then finally he writes this, unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. From the first day that you enter your profession until the day that you are too old to care. That will be the natural thing. The life that will come to you of its own accord. Unless. And then C.S. Lewis gave some helpful advice. It's interesting, isn't it? Good insights. Now the full address by C.S. Lewis is on YouTube and it's only 20 minutes. The inner ring. Well, I encourage you to have a listen. It's really well put together. But for today, these thoughts on peer pressure serve to introduce us to our next passage in 1 Peter. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is going to deal with suffering and then move on to dealing with peer pressure. And we're going to track Peter's thoughts from suffering to peer pressure. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will cause us to hear what you want us to hear, and not only hear, but to obey. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So let's dive into our passage from where we left off last week. Here we go. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, 
He does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, whenever a Bible passage starts with the word therefore, we need to consider what's gone on before. You see, the word therefore signals that to make sense of what we're about to hear, we must consider what has already been said. So we need to go back a few verses towards the end of 1 Peter chapter 3 to see what Peter was talking about. And it was all about baptism, if you remember, from last week. Chapter 3, verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience before God. Now, last week we explored this passage, and the message is online if you want to, if you missed it or you want to revisit it. But what we need to pick up on is the word pledge. It's this pledge that we make at our baptism that is carried forward from chapter 3 into chapter 4 that Peter is looking at. He's saying, well, you make a pledge at baptism. Well, what does this look like? Let me tell you. And then he writes chapter 4. Now, what is, the, what is this pledge? Well, it's a solemn vow that we take at our baptism to live a life worthy of the love that God's poured out on us. It's a pledge to live and act in a way that means we have a good conscience before God, that we will act rightly before God and before others. You see, before our conversion, sin reigned in our lives. But after conversion, of which baptism is a symbol, at conversion, sin is given a death blow. It is dethroned. Christ comes in and dethrones sin, and Christ takes up the rightful throne, the rightful place in our life. However, though sin does not reign, sin does remain after baptism. A very important difference, isn't it? I'll say it again. At baptism, at our conversion, sin does not reign, but it does remain. It's not like at our baptism, sin never troubles us. Sin can trouble us, but it will never reign unless we let it. And this pledge that we make at our baptism acknowledges that sin does remain, and we are going to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to remove it. For even though sin is dethroned, if we do nothing, the sin that remains will grow like a cancer, like a weed that will choke up our walk with God. I mean, think back to the days of Adam and Eve and their son Cain. And Cain was mightily jealous of his brother Abel, so much so that God warned him with these words. And we see this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And God says this to Cain. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And sadly, sin did master Cain. And sin has mastered humankind ever since. However, the good news of the gospel is that at Christ's death and resurrection, things have changed. Not only does sin not reign, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can rid ourselves of the sin that remains. And this is where the however that starts this passage, or the therefore, I should say, that starts this passage 
that leads us to say that we must therefore go and work on the pledge. And key to this, key to this therefore, is this. And it's the word attitude. Notice this. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The attitude makes all the difference. Now, let's agree that top sports people train hard and are highly conditioned. But when you get a top successful athlete and ask them what they put their success to, often they'll say it's all down to the top six inches. What's the athlete referring to when they talk about the top six inches? Yeah, it's their attitude, isn't it? It's their mind. That's the difference between a highly trained athlete who doesn't win and a highly trained athlete that does win. It's the attitude, the mindset that they have as they approach the game and how they process the ups and the downs of their training in the midst of the game and post-training. And so the All Blacks did not have a good day at the office yesterday, did they? What do you think they'll be saying now? They'll be focusing on the top six inches because each one of those are highly trained, incredibly skilled athletes. It's not like the coach is going to say, well, let's go and throw the ball around some of you, you know what I mean? I mean, they'll do a bit of that anyway, but they'll be working on their attitude because that was the difference on the day. You know, and it's similar with us when it comes to how we can live lives worthy of God, how we can pledge ourselves to live before him with a good conscience, how we can resist and remove sin that remains starts with the attitude, and not just any attitude. We have to have the attitude of Christ, the attitude of Christ. And of course, this begs the question, what is the attitude of Christ? Well, let's pick this up. And of course, Peter emphasizes the attitude of Christ when it comes to suffering. Again, back to verse 1. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with this attitude, because he who has suffered in his body has done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will. Christ suffered. Arm yourself with the same attitude. And of course, we've been tracking through Peter for quite a while and we're not surprised that Peter returns to the topic of suffering and we won't be surprised that he's going to bring it up later in Peter as well and if we step back we remind ourselves that Peter has written to Christians scattered through what is now modern day Turkey that are suffering intensely for their faith and the main reason he's writing the letter is to build up and encourage their faith so that they won't turn away or their faith will not fail under persecution and so Peter's saying when you suffer, and I know you are, suffer with the same attitude of Christ. And here we have a major point of difference between Christianity and other religions. You see, when faced with suffering, no other religion has a God who also suffered as we suffered and suffered with purpose and is as our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ offers not only to walk with us in our suffering, but ensures that our suffering is not wasted, but instead bears good fruit. And this all starts with our attitude being the same as Christ when he suffered. For when Jesus was falsely accused, 
He wasn't bitter and twisted. He wasn't angry or defiant. Instead, he was obedient to God and trusted God, even when every circumstance that Jesus was going through was pointing to the fact that he'd been abandoned. You know, as he was tried, as he was whipped, as he carried the cross, as he was crucified, every circumstance pointed to the fact that his heavenly father had abandoned him, but he still clung to his God, to his heavenly father. I mean, that's the attitude of Christ, isn't it? And not only that, he continued to serve the living God while he was suffering. He continued to pray for others. And when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the attitude of Christ. Even while he was suffering, he was praying for others. He was leading other other people into the kingdom of God on the cross. Remember the thief beside him. Even when he was suffering, he was concerned about the person next to him and that he should join him in paradise. And even on the cross, he was caring for others. Remember what he said as he looked down and saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. He showed care for his mother. All on the cross. I mean, this is the attitude that we are to have as we suffer, to keep praying, to keep sharing the gospel, to keep caring. Of course, we can't do that in our own strength. It's only as we look to Jesus who died for us and and ask for the Holy Spirit to help that we can have the same attitude that Christ had as he suffered. Yes, when we suffer well, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, then there are significant benefits as well. Significant benefits. We talked about this before. When we suffer and suffer well, we are purified. As gold or silver goes through a refining fire, when we suffer, whether it be persecution, whether it be uh, health, whether it be relationship breakdown or financial stress, when we suffer and suffer well, God purifies us. When we suffer and we suffer well, we're also a tremendous witness to non-church people, to non-Christians. And here we find that when we suffer and suffer well, we are done with sin. That's the phrase that's used in verse 1. When we suffer as with Christ, we are done with sin. The sin that remains, its grip is loosened. Its effect is reduced as we suffer and suffer well. Now, sadly, uh, this verse has been misinterpreted by some Christians over the ages. Out of an earnest desire to rid of sin, Some people look at that verse that says that suffering means that you are done with sin and they self-inflict suffering on themselves. And their logic is something like this. I am a sinner. I feel guilty. I deserve to be punished. The verse of 1 Peter promises that when I suffer, I will be rid with sin. So I will self-inflict pain. I will be done with sin and I will be right with God. And so we have the practice, among others, of self-flagellation, self-whipping to the stage where it draws blood. And you see there the image, uh, a medieval uh, wood carving of two Christians whipping themselves, drawing blood. And then you'll see a modern-day photo of people doing the same thing, whipping themselves 
because they believe that if they do, they will rid themselves of sin. But this is a terrible misunderstanding, misinterpretation of the verse here for at least three reasons. At least three reasons self-inflicting suffering to rid sin is wrong. The first reason is it is by faith that we are forgiven and by faith sin is removed, not by how much pain we can endure. The second reason why this is wrong is it leads to pride because if you whip yourself to draw blood, then you feel that you're a better Christian than most others that don't. And this is encouraged by other Christians who look on and think, wow, that guy must be a wonderful Christian. Look at the pain they're suffering. So it leads to pride. But the third reason why this is wrong and the most compelling reason is because this is not the attitude of Christ. Christ did not actively seek out suffering for suffering's sake. Christ was so focused on pleasing his heavenly Father, it did not bother him whether he suffered or not. And as Jesus had his eyes fixed on his heavenly Father, there were times when he suffered, and he faced those well and rightly. And the same with us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him, there will be times when we suffer, and so we have the right attitude, the attitude of Christ, and we suffer well. And one of the benefits is that we are done with sin. Now time's moving on and there's another aspect that Paul writes to describe that pledge, that pledge we make at baptism. You know, the pledge to live lives worthy, to rid ourselves of sin. And the first thing that he talks about is that when you suffer, one of the consequences is that sin will lose its grip. You'll be done with sin. That's the first thing. The second thing that Peter then goes on is a warning. Living a life worthy, living in good conscience before God means that we will refuse to be drawn back to our old way of life. We will refuse peer pressure. This is the second part of the pledge that we make at baptism. And we see this in verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So you see, baptism symbolizes a break from our past. Now, John Stott uses a really helpful illustration of our lives being divided into two volumes, two books. The first volume is our life before baptism, and the second volume is our life after baptism. Now, if you came to a baptism, if you came to Christ late, then your first volume will be large and maybe colourful for all the wrong reasons. And your second volume will be thin, and that's what you're writing now. For those that became Christians early, but baptised early, well, their first volume is quite short, and the second volume is quite long, and... We're still working on it, no matter. The point is, there is a clear difference, a before and after, marked by our conversion, of which baptism is a symbol. The life before is very different to our life now. Now, in Peter's day, because the church was so early, 
100% of the people that he wrote to, I'm betting, 100% were converted as adults. You know what I mean? Because they didn't have time to make babies and then those babies to grow up and to be baptised, if you know what I mean. Unlike our context, where we have a number of folk here that were baptised as babies and then confirmed and all that sort of stuff. And so the point is the same though, isn't it? There was a time before Jesus was real to us, and that's volume one. And then there's a point after Jesus is made real to us, and that's volume two. And what verses three and four are saying is, don't go back to volume one. Don't go back to the lifestyle that you left at conversion at baptism. That's the pledge that you make as you go under the waters and come out again, not to go back to the inner crowd, not to go back to the inner ring, to resist the old gang, as is highlighted here, even if our sins aren't as colourful and dramatic as the ones that are mentioned in the Bible, no matter, we resist going back to the in crowd or any new in crowd that comes our way. And there can be great cost in refusing to give up to peer pressure and refusing to go back to the volume one in our lives. And this is something that the poet T.S. Eliot found. Now, he became a Christian and was baptism. Now, prior to his conversion, Eliot was already a famous poet. And he was part of the innermost inner ring in London, a very small handful of intellectual and artists. They were in the group that every other aspiring intellectual and artist in London wanted to be there. He was in the inner ring. But when they found out that his colleagues, his friends in the inner ring, found out that he had become a Christian, they were appalled. Now the writer, Virginia Woolf, was the unofficial leader of this inner ring, and she wrote this to the other members. I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he even goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. And that was the attitude of the innermost inner ring in London intellectuals and artists of the day, and it cost T.S. Eliot to turn his back and to walk away, which he did. He resisted. He had volume one finished and he put it on the bookshelf and he pulled out volume two and he said, I'm going to write my life with Christ as Lord. And that's what it is to fulfill the pledge that we make at our baptism to live lives worthy of the love that God has given us. And let's start pulling this together. When we ask Christ to be Lord and Saviour, sin is dethroned. Praise the Lord, it's wonderful, isn't it? You know, that, that, that beast that is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. Well, before it wasn't a level playing field, and we didn't have the strength and the ability to resist sin, but now because of Christ, we, we do. But although sin doesn't reign, sin still remains. And if we do nothing that sin that remains will grow up like a weed and choke up our walk with God. And so at baptism, we make a pledge, we make a vow to live in good conscience before God and to rid ourselves of the sin that remains. 
And we've seen today that suffering is one of the things that God uses in our life to loosen that grip. That when we suffer and suffer well, the Holy Spirit will help us rid ourselves of that sin. It's, it never stops, does it? Because we are frail. All through life, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to rid ourselves of sin. And hopefully you can look back and see progress. You can look back a year or five or ten years and saying, praise God, he's done a work. And I pray that each one of us, including myself, in another five years will look back and say, yes, I mean, the Holy Spirit's even weeded that out of my life. So that's the first thing. And the second thing about that pledge, so that sin does not remain, is the resistance of peer pressure. That volume two that we are focusing on and a refusal to go back to volume one. A refusal in the golf course or the bridge club, at work. You know as I'm talking that there's an inner ring, that there's the in crowd. What's your attitude towards that? You know, have you compromised? Are you willing to compromise to get you into the in crowd even if they'll let you? I mean, that's the resistance that we need to have. And as, as, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, you know, from the day that you were in the workforce, even before, from when you go to school, first day you go to school, you know there's an in crowd. To the day that you don't bother caring, then we all have to face the possibility, the draw, the temptation to belong to that in crowd. However, if we have the attitude of Christ, and this is my challenge to you today, have you the attitude of Christ when it comes to suffering, when it comes to peer pressure, when it comes to the other things that we'll start looking at next week? Can I encourage you just to reflect on the attitude that silly challenged me this week? You see, it's only as we look to Christ who suffered well with purpose and for us that the victory of the empty tomb is realized in our life and the sin that reigns is defeated and the sin that remains is squashed and pushed out and replaced with a wonderful love for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of Christ's death and resurrection and because we have given our lives to Jesus, sin does not reign in our lives anymore. And our prayer is that you will show us by your Holy Spirit how we can live lives worthy, live lives that are are positive for you, and live lives, Lord, that have ever-reducing amounts of sin in our life. Lord, we confess that we've tripped up or failed, but we also confess, Lord, that you are more than able to forgive, restore, and encourage. May we continue to fix our eyes in Jesus and trust in him, our Saviour and our Lord. We pray this through Christ, our Saviour. Amen.